This is the McGraw Show on KTRS. Though, got a text message from a long, long-time friend the other day. They sent me a picture of them sitting down with the menu of Piccadilly at Manhattan in front of them. I said, how'd it go? They said, it's fantastic. Why didn't you tell me about this sooner? I said, I've been telling you about it for 20 years now. Piccadilly at Manhattan. It's in the Ellendale neighborhood. What are you doing for lunch today? Great place to go on a nice Wednesday afternoon. Piccadilly at Manhattan in the Ellendale neighborhood. Get to Highway 40. Get to McCausland. Go south on McCausland, cross over Manchester, cross over Arsenal, about a half mile, there's a street called Piccadilly and there's a street called Manhattan. If you miss one, you can get the next one. Turn right on either one of those, and those things merge, those two streets merge about a half a block, two blocks down the road, and you got Piccadilly at Manhattan right there. You'll never come across it by accident. Once you get there, sit in the back patio, sit in the front. They got space heaters when it's cold. They got flowers when it's nice. Always got great food. I've been there 20 years. I've had some bad company at Piccadilly at Manhattan, but I've never had a bad meal. Piccadilly at Manhattan. We'll see you there at Piccadilly.com. Greg Willard is a KTRS legal analyst, St. Louis University Law School professor, and one heck of a nice man. Good morning, Greg Willard. Good morning, McGraw. How are you? Good. You know, it's so funny. You and I, I don't know if you said it on the air or off the air, but you said at some point in this um, in this immunity conversation you said that if presidents have immunity, uh, Richard Nixon is not going to no longer need a pardon and Bill Clinton can get his law license back. And that's exactly what the judges wrote about in this opinion. Uh, you are you are right, my friend. We had that conversation on the air uh, several months ago, and the uh, paradox of uh, Mr. Trump's arguments was was uh, apparent to the two of us then, and it was laid bare yesterday, as you say, in the court's opinion, McGraw. Okay, so uh, this was one of the court cases that's working its way through whether or not a president, not just Donald Trump, but any president, Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Gavin Newsom, George W. Bush, does a president have absolute immunity meaning they can do anything they want whenever they want because they're president of the United States. And a judge or a three-judge panel in D.C. unanimously said no. What did they say? Let me set the stage quickly because I think think it's important for at least our listeners this morning. It's much of this is being missed on the cable news, but hopefully – at the end of our conversation, our listeners will, will get it a little better. Um, this arises out of the four-count felony indictment against Mr. Trump in Washington, D.C., relating to what the grand jury found and indicted him on 
false claims and conspiracies relating to the lead up to the January 6th certification and uh, the grand jury found his attempts to fraudulently uh, convince Vice President Pence to overturn the election results. President Trump, in the trial court, filed a motion to dismiss, and he asserted three bases for that. One is this notion of presidential immunity that you just mentioned. Two, he said, you should be a textualist and read the Constitution. And the Constitution says that in a criminal conviction can take place after an impeachment conviction. Number three, he said, I was acquitted in my impeachment trial, and therefore it would violate my constitutional rights against double jeopardy. So those were the three items. He lost all three before Judge Chutkin in the trial court. He appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in December, and they heard oral argument in early January, and they issued a 57-page unanimous opinion rejecting each of his claims. Let's take the presidential immunity claim first, McGraw, and we can circle back to impeachment and double jeopardy if we have time. A lot of our listeners may react almost viscerally and say, well, that's just ridiculous to think that a president should have absolute immunity. That would be wrong. It is not ridiculous. Because in the early 1980s, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Presidents have absolute immunity from civil liability claims. So a, a, a citizen in Boise, Idaho, believed that uh, she was uh, her property was damaged because of something a president did. And she, she wants to sue him and get damages. And the United States Supreme Court in the early 1980s in the Fitzgerald case ruled that presidents have absolute immunity from civil liability. The question with Mr. Trump was, do presidents also have absolute immunity for criminal liability? And we now have... Two courts, including a highly respected three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit, have, have ruled that he does not have absolute immunity, and no president has absolute immunity. So we'll see where it goes from here, McGraw, but um, if any of our listeners are interested in reading a profoundly well-written opinion. They don't have to agree or disagree with it, but a profoundly well-written law opinion. Um, I would urge them to read the 57-page opinion. It is a remarkable 
uh, work of uh, legal scholarship and historical scholarship. What did the Supreme Court rule in the Clinton Paula Jones case that he could sit for a deposition? What was that? What was that? Where does that come into all this conversation? That that question was uh, whether a president could be sued for conduct in which he engaged before he became president. And the Supreme Court ruled that a sitting president can be sued for civil damages uh, on account of conduct before he became the president. But the Supreme Court put up a whole bunch of yellow lights to caution any trial courts who would hear those cases in terms of the deference that they have to make to the president's schedule. That's different than the Fitzgerald case, which said he cannot be sued. A president cannot be sued for civil damages on account of acts he took while he was President McGraw. Uh, so the other, all three were rejected. It was a it was a limited court, uh, three-judge panel. Two were appointed by Biden. One was appointed by, I believe, George W. Bush. Um, they're, uh, from what they're saying on TV, they say it was a very tight reading, a very tight opinion, and that there's not a lot of mm-hmm. room for the Supreme Court to add anything to it, and the odds are that the Supreme Court will not take it up. Do you agree with that analysis? I do, McGraw. I think, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is a it is a phenomenally well-written opinion, irrespective of where one comes out on the, the substantive issues. Um, in addition, it, uh, it doesn't, shall we say, wax on philosophically about high and mighty legal principles and all. It, it's very pointed, very, very uh, crisply written. So if President Trump, through his lawyers on Monday, files papers in the Supreme Court, uh, they, they are going to have to ask the court, in addition to staying and, and halting the circuit court's opinion yesterday, they're going to have to convince the Supreme Court that it should take this case. In a, in a year, the Supreme Court receives about 7,000 requests to hear cases. They get to decide which ones they hear. And in a typical year, they hear between 65 and 75. That's it. So just because former President Trump files papers with the Supreme Court and says, here's my case, uh, the the odds certainly are that the court will not. I think there are a lot of reasons, both uh, constitutional reasons, practical reasons, and dare I say political reasons in this campaign year, that the Supreme Court would not take up this case. And there's one more reason, McGraw, that I think a lot of people are missing. And it's this. Because President Trump was asserting immunity, and he lost that in the trial court, that type of a of a motion and a decision against him, a denial of immunity, 
it is an exception to the rule that everything has to wait until the case is all done before it goes up on appeal. But on a question of immunity that the defendant loses, there's an exception to that rule that allows that defendant to take an appeal in the meantime. We lawyers call it an interlocutory appeal. So there is a scenario where if this goes back to the trial court, a jury finds the former president guilty. He can still appeal and eventually get on the doorstep of the Supreme Court and sort of get a second bite at the apple to ask the Supreme Court to hear this immunity question. Said another way, just because the Supreme Court may turn him down on this interlocutory consideration doesn't mean that he has lost that argument forever, McGraw. Interesting. Uh, Also, um, in this ruling, the three judges, he can take it to the full circuit court, but they wrote some sort of deadlines in there saying, if you don't do it by Monday, then I'm going to withhold the stay and get back to where we're going. So they they sort right. of put the Trump team in a box. Explain that and explain, is that normal or is that extremely rare? I, I know we're in sort of unprecedented territory anyway, but how often do they say, if you don't appeal in the next three or four days, we're going forward? Well, it's most certainly unusual, McGraw, but in the context of this case, it is not surprising. What's going on here is um, whether whether our listeners are Bernie Sanders and AOC supporters or Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, I think we can all agree on one thing. Donald Trump's strategy in all of these criminal cases against him is stalled. It's the old University of North Carolina coach, Dean Smith, the four corners stall. And it's no secret that that's what he wants to do is to stall until he's reelected president, at which point he orders the Justice Department to drop these cases and he gives himself a pardon. Okay, that's I think most people recognize that. What the Court of Appeals said yesterday is that the order from their decision back to the trial court, which is called the mandate. What they said is, if you file a motion asking our court to hear this again, we are going to send the mandate back next Tuesday. And once the mandate goes back, McGraw, Judge Shutkin can fire up the engines in the trial court and and proceed full speed ahead to the trial. The Court of Appeals then said, you know, if you if you ask us to hear it again for the full court, we're going to send it back on Tuesday. If you file a motion with the Supreme Court by the end of the day Monday, we will hold off on sending our mandate back to the trial court. We will hold off on doing that until the Supreme Court decides whether it wants to give you a stay. And if the Supreme Court does not, the mandate will immediately go back down to Judge Chutkin and she begins preparation for your trial. If the Supreme Court uh, grants the stay uh, of our decision, then 
you know, that's the Supreme Court. We will all abide by that. So I think your description a moment ago was a good one. Uh, they, they put him into a procedural box, but I think most fair-minded observers would uh, conclude that given the context of this litigation, it was a fair and appropriate box for the court to construct to bring this to a resolution, McGraw. Greg Willard, uh, Donald Trump's about to have some serious money issues. There's another court that's about to rule on him, whether or not he owes mm-hmm. $250, $300 million in a fine. He already got uh, the $80 million fine the other day. He's got to put up this money uh, in a bond, and there's there's interest on top of this, and so he's in a money crunch. There's this uh, documents case where there are a lot of smart people who say that um, they've got him, and uh, it looks like he might be convicted. Is there an Eric Greitens solution? Could he uh, go to these guys and say, I'll step down and not run if you drop all these cases? Is that possible? Uh, in, in a world where we deal in odds in, in jillionths, yes. You know, there is a one kajillionth chance that that, that could happen. Um, as a practical matter, it's different than Greitens. It's different than Vice President Spiro Agnew. Both of those office holders uh, stepped down from their office in the context of uh, litigation. Right. There's no, uh, there's, there's no um, sort of imminent um, uh, scenario whereby Donald Trump would step down from an office that he holds, whether the vice president or the governor of Missouri. So I think it is, it is highly unlikely that that there would be that type of a scenario. So they were they were office holders to begin with. They were yeah. running for something. Gotcha. Right. Uh, Greg, the, hold other, the other piece. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the Greg, other piece, quick. Greg, hold on. Hold on. Hold that other piece. Okay. I also want to ask you about tomorrow's uh, Supreme Court uh, case with Donald Trump. Hold that thought. Greg Willard with us here for a couple more minutes, a couple of text messages. Um, text your comments to 84126 or questions, and I'll try and get them in to Professor Greg Willard. Down on the corner, out in the street, All right, sorry about that, Greg Willard. Zach being what he is, I got to follow the clock. So I apologize. And I caught you mid-sentence. What was that second part you wanted to comment on? Well, I was just going to say there's a, there's a practical reason why this is not going to be, shall we say, settled out with with uh, a, a comprehensive plea bargain. And it's this. On the criminal side, McGraw, there are criminal charges pending in two federal courts, Washington, D.C., and Southern District of Florida. There are criminal charges pending in two states, New York and Georgia. And there are the civil charges that are pending in New York. So the the prospect that somehow everybody involved in all of that criminal and civil litigation is going to get around the campfire and sing kumbaya and enter into a comprehensive settlement with President Trump. That's why I said in the earlier segment, it's one kajillionth of a chance that that could happen. It, uh, it is just, it, it's not, it's not 
I think, practical uh, in prospect, and and I think most assuredly it's not uh, legally in prospect, McGraw. You know, the these, other th- these cases are going to go to trial. Yeah. The other thing about this, and I, I'll use me as an example, um, and, I, and I don't know where the voter comes in with all of this. Not the partisan Trumper or the partisan person who loves Biden, who hates Trump, and vice versa, but the the voter, the independent mm-hmm. voter who's trying to make up their mind on who to vote for. Shouldn't that voter have the information so they can make an informed decision? Shouldn't we be able to hear the court cases, see the court cases, hear the jury's uh, decision so that we can make an informed decision? And if we don't, isn't that sort of getting it? You know, people they always talk about the Justice Department getting into the politics of it all. Charging somebody and not having him have his day in court is not fair. The voter... I should be allowed to know how this turns out before I go to the polls and vote. Uh, you make a, a terrific argument, uh, I, and I'm not. I don't take sides on the air. I'm not going to take sides this morning. But I will. I will suggest to you that the the there are those who would say no, McGraw. Um, it's not necessary for that to happen. Um, if if ever there is a situation where all of the facts are known, this is it. Uh, Donald Trump is is probably the most uh, thoroughly examined and and laid bare in the public square president or presidential candidate we, we've ever had. Number two is uh, again a practical one, not so much a legal one. But the practical one is if these trials start. Um, let's say in June or July. Well, they will go on for weeks. And in those criminal trials, unlike the civil trials, Mr. Trump will be required to be there. So in effect, you're having trials that are taking out of the playing field of a presidential campaign and sitting him in a courtroom in Washington or West Palm Beach, uh, Fort Pierce, Florida, or elsewhere, and that's a that's a very compelling argument as to whether whether these cases should go forward in the middle of a presidential campaign. My guess is that if if one or more um, begins. Uh, late this spring or early this summer, they will go forward. I, I, I don't expect any of these judges to say, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to go pins down for six months because there's a presidential campaign. So, I don't see that happening. So, so you think come Election Day in November of 2024, we will have known if Donald Trump is a convicted felon or not? I think that's highly likely in not all of the cases, McGraw, but certainly in the uh, this one that we're talking about in the earlier segment, the uh, the – January 6th, uh, 2020 election. Uh, I think I think it's highly likely that will be complete concluded by the November election. McGraw. All right. Assuming the Supreme Court's case tomorrow, which they're fine. They're the question. The Supreme Court, the nine smartest people in the world are going to decide is whether or not his name should even appear on the ballot. How do you think tomorrow's going to turn out? What, what are you expecting for tomorrow? Um. Uh, <clears throat> Tomorrow, if, if our listeners have the time, either during the day or tomorrow night, they can they can listen to the recording. Uh, I would urge them to listen to it. I think it will be 
one of the most uh, educational uh, oral arguments that has occurred in the court for, for many years. The issue tomorrow, McGraw, is whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution precludes President Trump from being on the ballot. A court, a state court in Colorado has determined that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does preclude him from being on the upcoming primary ballot. So for the the Trump opponents in our listening audience, they probably have their, their hopes up pretty high. For the Trump supporters, I would simply say to them, uh, stand by and fear a little less because there are about six constitutional hoops buried in that Section 3 McGraw. And to kick Donald Trump off the ballot, Colorado doesn't have to be a Ted Williams 400 hitter. They have to bat 1,000. They have to win on every one of those six threshold questions in the 14th Amendment. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. It will be up to the United States Supreme Court to decide. The, the final comment I'd make apropos of the, your, your lead-in discussion in the prior segment, many of our listeners will remember um, probably a year and a half ago you and I were on the air and we talked about this, and, and I think my comment was, well, stand by. Those that are saying Section 3 applies, it is not a frivolous, laughable argument. I think we are seeing that borne out because tomorrow the issue is going to be finally wrestled with and decided by the Supreme Court. We'll see, but I don't like to quarrel with the way you characterize things, but I'll quarrel this time just to clarify. The Supreme Court is not going to decide whether Donald Trump should or should not appear on a ballot. What the Supreme Court is going to decide is this is what the words of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment mean. And that then will be the guidance and the test that all of the other courts in the country have to use uh, when applying Section 3. It, and w we'll see where it comes out, but um, depending on which side is happy with the outcome and which side is, side is sad, I don't care. But I do want to make the point, uh, the nine justices are not going to be uh, saying, well, we, we decide that Donald Trump should be on the ballot. We decide he shouldn't. That will be left to other courts, McGraw, based on the decision they're going to reach in this case. Okay, so so explain that a little further there, oh, wise one. First of all, I question you. <laughs> you I question you questioning me, but we'll leave that for another time. <laughs> what are they? Are they going to rule that January 6th is considered an insurrection? What he did on January 6th is an insurrection? Are they going to say if he, you know, sold secrets to the enemy? That I mean, what? How how much minutia are they going to get into? They will get into all of the legal minutia of Section 3 and what that means and what the tests are and, and to whom it applies. One of those six 
questions that I mentioned a moment ago, McGraw, um, that Colorado has to go six for six in the batting cage. Um, one of those questions is whether second three even applies to a presidential candidate. Um, and then this, this whole notion of insurrection or giving comfort to insurrectionists. And I think the court will explain and define what, what those terms mean. But the Supreme Court doesn't decide factual issues, McGraw. Um, juries decide factual issues. The Supreme Court does not. It will interpret Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and then based on that interpretation, as I say, all of the other courts in the United States will be duty-bound to, to follow it. It may be that they interpret it in a way, as I say, that is absolutely game, set, match. Donald Trump is not subject to Section 3 because it doesn't apply to presidents. Okay, that's a legal determination they've made. And so that, that's why we just will we'll have to wait to see how they parse through that 1868 amendment and its language to see what it means to then allow the facts to be applied as it may be necessary by other courts, McGraw. So what you're saying, originalists who believe in the original text as is might be hedging their bets a little bit? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, it, it's it's sort of a, a full service, full service section three, in that uh, there's a little bit in there for everybody. The uh, the originalist and the textualist, and on the one hand, and the living constitutionalists on the other. Um, you can read um, section three all day, McGraw, and you don't see in there the word president. It's not there. They talk about representatives and senators and other office holders, but you never see the word president in there. So you got one side saying, well, you know, look right here. Um, uh, it doesn't say president, therefore Donald Trump's exempt, and this is a bunch of hoo-ha. Uh, and then you have uh, people who very often uh, kind of go the other way in interpreting the Constitution, and they say, well, this is what the good folks meant in 1868. Well, but, but hold they, on. I don't see AK-47s in the Second Amendment, right? But my mm -hmm. right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, it doesn't say anything about an AK-47, So, but that's incorporated in this. And when it says, um, you know, um, any, uh, any, well, no person shall be senator or representative of Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any mm -hmm. office, civil or military, of the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislator or an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. I don't know. Right. That's, I mean, that's OK. It doesn't say president, but I, I find it hard pressed that when they said right to keep and bear arms, they meant except AK-47s. Right, but what what I think uh, a, a justice of the Supreme Court would say is, uh, yeah, good point, McGraw, but um, well, you're that wrong. word right that word right to bear arms, um, what does that mean? We don't have a glossary of terms. What does that What does that term mean? We have to interpret it. On the other hand, we can read Section Three 
a justice might say. And McGraw, it doesn't say that it applies to a presidential candidate. But but no, it no, no, I, I get that. But uh, no matter what the Supreme Court comes back with, can't yes. Colorado say clearly, clearly he if they define what this section means, then yes. clearly Colorado can come back and say, well, clearly that means he can't be on the ballot. But Oklahoma can come back and say, well, clearly that means he can be on the ballot. So they're going to have to write it in a way that that is is defined to whether or not he can or can't be on the ballot or yeah, no. I, I think that's a tr- you make a terrific point and the 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 broader the broader the sweep of their decision um it necessarily follows exactly what you just said is you 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 begin then to open up dare I say Pandora's box that you get 50 different factual applications uh, in 50 different states. Um, And so that's why it's going to be so critically important that the Supreme Court write their decision in this case, similar, dare I say, to how the three judges wrote their decision yesterday in his absolute immunity uh, appeal. Uh, Because this is going to be a, a, a foundational decision that they make, McGraw, and lower courts are going to have to apply it. Quickly, one one other point to keep in mind. The federal government does not run presidential elections. Right. The state governments do, and it's because of that fact which is embedded in the Constitution, because of that fact, it gives rise to the Oklahoma-Colorado court scenario that you just so appropriately mentioned. That That is why we would have to deal, uh, potentially, depending on how they rule, uh, we would potentially have to deal with uh, uh, 50 dueling views of, uh, of application of Section 3, McGraw. And then depending on when they rule, let's say they, they rule in August or September, right? I mean, the, we're already in the middle of the campaign. Then his name can't appear on a ballot? Again, I, well, I, I'd like to know that before before his yeah. name peels on the ballot. Well, as we say up in the country, that ain't happening. Uh, they will rule. Uh, if I were a betting man, which I am, I would bet by no later than the end of March, we will have the decision of McGraw. I mean, keep in mind, the the Supreme Court has been working on this decision for weeks. They don't just suddenly start to work after oral argument. So I think we can take some comfort in the fact that the court has been hard at work and their clerks on this decision for quite some time. Oral argument will help them finalize their views. They will take a vote this Friday in their conference as to uh, what the decision is and then who will be assigned to write the opinion. But I I will be uh, shocked uh, beyond the level of a defibrillator if we haven't heard by the end of March. Okay. All right. Good to know. Keep your phone on. Greg Willard. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Great to be with you, my friend. As always, good stuff. Uh, St. Louis University Law School professor, KTS legal analyst, and all around one heck of a nice man.